find to find, found to find. I want to close it off and inspire and hopefully encourage us as we, as we make space for next week. Now, one of the interesting things about good things is that with that which brings us joy, we want to share and want to bring joy to other people. Like when you experience something that brings you joy, like the fact that last night Ireland beat Tonga, it's like it's a good thing, we're happy, we're excited, we're not happy about all the other teams beating other teams, we're only happy about the Irish team beating Tonga. And this coming Saturday, when Ireland face off world number two, South Africa, we'll bring great joy when Ireland beats Africa. So, you know, we're, we're, feeling, very, we're feeling very positive. Maybe it's, it's, it's too soon to say that, but we live in hope. The point is, whatever brings us joy, naturally we want to share that joy with other people. Oftentimes, we're excited to invite others to come and see the thing that brings us joy. Maybe it's a new car. Maybe it's a new house. Maybe it's a big match. Maybe it's a new baby. Maybe it's a special event. I remember the first time I ever bought, like, bought a car for myself. The first thing I did was I phoned my father. I don't know why. It's like a, maybe it's a manly thing. If your relationship with dad's not great, maybe it's not true. But for me... The first thing I did was I phoned my dad. My dad at the time was a postman. I said, where are you? He said, I'm, I'm on the run. I said, where are you in town? He said, well, I'm on this place. I said, okay, I'm coming to work, coming to you right now. And he's like, why? I said, don't worry. And I pulled up my new car and I got out and he got off his bicycle and we stood around this car for about a minute or two and it was just a car, you know, and that car is obviously now gone. Who knows if it's still on the road or scrapped. But for me in that moment, that thing brought me so much joy, I had to share it with my with my dad, or maybe for some of us, and there's a whole baby boom gone in the church, babies everywhere. It's like, man, we're all sharing in the constant joy of newborn babies in the church. It never ends. Well done, keep going. Uh, <laughs> if you can't reach them, we'll grow them. Um, so it's just something natural about the joy of news. Uh, funny story, this week, uh, most of you are aware my wife, Lamila, is actually away in Brazil. She's on her way home, everybody. Thank you, Jesus. She comes home tomorrow, so praying for a safe flight. But... Um, but during the week, uh, as I was just cleaning up the kitchen, I found a letter from the hospital. And the letter was for my son, Joshua, saying that he'd go into hospital on Friday, that is two days ago, for a procedure. And of course, I didn't know anything about the letter, the context, what was going on. I'm phoning the hospital. Good luck with that. Transferred from, transferred from person to person to person. I'm like, I don't know if it's a checkup. I don't know if it's a scan. I don't know what it is. So Friday morning, I get, bring the two kids to school, get Joshua and Jonathan in the car, head on to the hospital, get in the hospital. You know, I have to find the parking space, which is always a miracle in Dublin, full stop. And, uh, and then I'm met with the doctor that, that, that informs us that the reason why we're there that day is because Joshua is about to undergo surgery. And I'm like, well, and she goes, oh, actually, were you the one trying to phone my office during the week? I said, yeah. She goes, I forgot to ring you back. I'm like, oh, it's no problem. Like, I'm here. He's here. Even the baby's here. We're all here. It's going to go down. And so, thank God, Josh had this surgery done. He was put in general anesthetic and came back, and it was a success, and he's great, and he's healthy, and we thank God. But the first thing I did about this surgery I didn't even know about was I told everybody, and of course... Everybody else's reaction was, we're so happy for the result, but we never knew he's having surgery. I'm like, well, welcome to the club. Better did I. I'm just his father, everybody, okay? I'm doing my best. The point is, that which brings us joy, we naturally want to share and invite others to, to, to experience that joy. So the question we're asking is today in this final part is, so why should we invite others to come and see Jesus? Like we know Jesus brings us joy, but what is what does God's word say to us about why? Why those of us in this room who are Jesus followers, why we should be excited, why we should be hopeful, why we should be persevering, why we should be 
uh, basically serious about the responsibility that we have as people of faith to share that faith with the world around us. And to help us, we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Again, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, John was a friend of Jesus. He, he, he knew Jesus personally. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He was part of the three, so there's a 12 and there's a three. And whereas Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, they're theologically named synoptic gospels because they give a general synopsis of Jesus' life. John's gospel is a little bit different because John really doesn't care for the timeline as much as the detail. He really just hones in on some very powerful moments that Jesus had with those who followed him and those who didn't. And here in chapter 1 and verse 43, we're seeing Jesus call some of his first followers, inviting them to follow him, namely Philip and Nathaniel. And in verse 43, it says this, the next day, Jesus decided, keyword decided, to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. So the law was a, was a term that the Jews would have used to summarize the Old Testament. So basically, we found the one that the Old Testament speaks about. He is Jesus of Nazareth, because again, people didn't have surnames back then. You were known by your name, sometimes being the son of a certain person, or oftentimes by the place he came from. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel's reaction was not very positive. He said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? He asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Incredible. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, which is a Jewish word for teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, final verse, you believe because I, I told you I saw you under a fig tree, but you will see even greater things than that. You will see greater things. Now, what's so interesting here is uh, as Jesus calls a lot of his disciples, you read the gospels, there's almost like a, a, an immediate positive reaction. It's like, yes, I'll come follow you. But when Jesus calls Nathaniel, Nathaniel's like my kind of guy, because his reaction is not one of positive, uh, blind faith. It's one of like skepticism, borderline cynicism, uncertainty. You know, he, he, he's curious. And he's also, because, and again, just put it in context for geography, because his hometown was close to Jesus' hometown, and like anyone who has a hometown close to their hometown, it's like there's a natural geographic rivalry between where Nathaniel's from and where Jesus is from. And back in that day, uh, Nazareth did not have a good reputation. Uh, it'd be like saying, you know, can anything good come out of, you fill in the blank, I'm not going to say it, you know, Tyrrellstown, Ballymun, Black Rock, I don't know. I mean, like, we make it fair. It's like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like if you're from a certain place, so for me, yes, I did go up in a town called Carlo, and our local neighbor, our local rival was a small town called Tolo. And because I played rugby, we used to play rugby all the time, and we would always meet each other in matches. And one of the greatest rugby players in Irish history, Sean O'Brien, came from Tolo. And when, that, when he was on the ascendancy, 
that same sentiment that was echoed in this verse was often said, Tolo, can anything good come from Tolo? Well, apparently at least one thing. Anyway, so, so what we see here is there's three reasons why we should extend the invitation for us to come and see. First one is this, number one. The first thing we see in the text is that Jesus finds us. In verse 43, it said, the next day Jesus decided. This is really interesting. Why? Because Jesus made a decision, acted the will, to leave where he was to go to the region, Galilee's like a region, to go to Galilee. Why was he going? He was going there not because he had a job to run errands, groceries, buy milk. He was going there because he knew he would come across Philip. Now, other interesting uh, thing here is it says, finding Philip, finding Philip, I'll come to that in a second, finding Philip, he invited him to follow him. Now, in case you're wondering, well, who is this Philip guy that Jesus was so uh, resolute about meeting? What, what made Philip so special? And the answer is, there was nothing special about Philip. There's, there was nothing special about him before he followed Jesus. There's nothing special about him in following Jesus. And there's nothing really special about him even after following Jesus. Philip, in essence, was like what we're all like. He was an ordinary person. There is no real reason why Jesus was drawn to him, why Jesus sought him out, why Jesus wanted him. There's no, there's no natural gifting or talent or extra special calling or gifting or whatever. Just, he was just an ordinary person. But for some reason, Jesus made a decision to move in his direction. Now, what's really interesting is we're told that Jesus didn't meet Philip. Think about this. When you're out and about and you come across someone you don't know, you say, oh, I met so-and-so. When you're introducing two people that are known to you, but strangers to each other, you say, hey, John, did you meet Sean? Like whenever we come across people we don't know, we meet them, okay? That's how we talk about describing English. But we're told that Jesus found Philip. Well, where do we use the word found? When someone was looking for someone. When someone was, I was looking for John, I was looking for Sean. It's like, oh, and I found him. How many times as parents do we tell our spouse, oh, I found him. He was in the you know, dairy aisle or he was down the street or on the roof or in the bin or depending how your kids are crazy. I'm saying all sorts of places like, oh, I found him. And there is a degree to which maybe Philip didn't realize he needed to be found, but he was lost in some degree. Now, this is the good news. The good news is that Jesus came to find you too. Jesus, Jesus didn't just meet you, but it's like you're living your life and doing things, and all of a sudden, boom, oh, Jesus, how's it going? It's like from the minute you, even before you were born, Jesus' love and affection towards you was guaranteed. And he, had, he, 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 he orchestrates our life, or should I say, he, he partners or works in our life in a way that throughout our lives there are many opportunities for us to realize that we need to be found to begin with. Jesus came to find us, but Jesus also came to call us, and Jesus came to rescue us. And Jesus did not need to find Philip because Jesus didn't know where he was. Jesus came to find Philip because Philip didn't know where he was, spiritually speaking. Which is so interesting. Why? Because Jesus not only rescues us as ordinary people, but Jesus also recruits us into an extraordinary purpose. It was the late, great Dr. Timothy Keller, who earlier this year was promoted to heaven, who said this, and yet Jesus Christ, by his life, by his claims, and by his resurrection, convinced his closest Jewish followers that he was not just a prophet, 
telling them how to find God, but Jesus was God himself come to find us. Now, if you were raised in some kind of religious church or in a church background, you often hear the word Emmanuel thrown out there. Oftentimes in the Christmas story we quote because it was a prophecy uh, in the book of Isaiah about, you know, his name shall be Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel literally means God with us. Where, where prior to this moment, God has sent Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and all these other prophets. Here in the gospel, the reason why it's called the gospel is because what we had was actually God himself in the flesh coming to the earth, coming into our selfish, sinful, broken world to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us, but also to repurpose us. Because there's this sad understanding perspective out there where to be saved means we go to heaven, which, okay, part of being saved means we get to go to heaven. Heaven, the the reward isn't the place, the the reward is the presence of God. It's not about heaven being a special place. It's about living in, in permanent proximity to our Father forever. And where there is permanent proximity to our Father forever, there is no suffering. There is no, no more tears to be shed. There is no pain. There is no more cancer. There is no more heartache or heartbreak or betrayal. That's the reward for those who put our trust in Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. But we don't have to wait till heaven to experience the power and presence of God in its fullness, we can experience it right now. And part of our being saved as we're saved, living out our salvation, is that we get to do things on the earth in our lives that have a lasting impact for all eternity. That we get to partner with God as ordinary people in its extraordinary purpose of telling the world that God has come into the world because he wants to find us. So the first thing we see is that Jesus finally didn't meet Philip, he found him. Second thing is this, that when we experience God for ourselves, we end up finding others. In verse 45, we're told that Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about. Nathaniel retorts, like I said, cynically, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And what's so interesting is rather than getting into a philosophical, theological, a geopolitical debate about Nazareth and prophets and Old Testament theology and messianic beliefs and all these things, Philip just said, come and see. It's so easy when we share our faith to get bogged down in debate and argument and rationale. Sometimes there's a place for good, open-ended conversations. But the best way to, to know Jesus, the best way to, uh, to understand Jesus is to experience him. Like, you can't really be talked into salvation. You can understand it cerebrally. You can understand it intellectually. But until it goes from your head to your heart, until faith comes alive in you, until you experience the love of Jesus for yourself, English, the English language, every language falls short in its ability to fully explain what it means to be found by Jesus. And oftentimes, I think, uh, when we're trying to share faith with others, it can become such a dividing thing, like, oh, well, you believe this, and I believe that, and my view is different. It's like, look, that's, look, you're entitled to what you believe, and we love you and respect you regardless of what you stand for, what you believe, or what side of the geopolitical, sociological spectrum you're on. But ultimately, Jesus loves you. <laughs> as a plan and purpose for your life. And I can't talk you and talk you out and explain everything and and give you all the answers. All I can say to you is, if you're open-minded and open-hearted and you were to come and see, maybe you would experience the very thing we're talking about. 
Now, it's interesting. Why? Because what this reminds us of is that our place has purpose. You may have come here to have a better life. You may have come here for education. You may have come here to get better financial prospects for your children. You may have come here for so many reasons, as into Ireland. But ultimately, God brought you here on purpose. Like, yes, you're going to benefit because God's going to bless you. But, but your purpose is a, is a lowercase p because God's purpose is a capital P, capital U-R-P-O-S-E. Like God has a bigger purpose for your life. And for those of us who were born on this island and never could escape this island and still live on this island, you know, the bottom line is that even us being born here has a purpose. The place you work has a purpose. The place you study has a purpose. The place you live has a purpose. The, 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 the shops you go to, like everything about where you are isn't just disconnected, arbitrary geography. You know, this week I was doing my, my, my soaping, my Bible reading, and I was soaping on a verse in the book of Psalms that it said, it says, it says, my place and times are in your hands. I trust in you, my God. What an interesting verse. This idea that our place and our time has purpose in God's eyes. It's not wasted. It's not accidental. So the place you're in and the people of that place, God has a purpose. Maybe you're the answer to a, to a prayer that's prayed in the middle of the night that no one ever hears. A desperate prayer. Plea, God, if you're there, save me. God, if you're real, I need to know you. God, if, 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 if you even care about me, would you show me? It's funny because most of you know my story of how I came to faith. But after I became a Jesus follower, as I began to think back through my life, and I, I, was, I, I became a Jesus follower very young, 16, so it wasn't like a long life I had. I, back then I thought it was because all 16-year-olds think to know everything, right? And uh, so you're going, I, I, I know everything, right? I'm 16. Anyway, so um, as I, I, I realized there was, there was moments in my life where somehow I came across people of faith who were trying to share the good news with me, but that time I was disinterested, my mind was closed, my heart was closed, my reaction was something like Nathaniel's, sarcastic, cynical, disbelieving. But I also thought back about how so many times I would find myself in a place of just being so brokenhearted, so torn apart internally, so desperate, I would literally lie, I didn't have a bed, my mattress on the floor, I'd lie on the mattress on the floor and look at the ceiling and I used to have this massive poster of one of my favorite singers, my favorite band called Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, and the, on the poster, literally, this is the quote, it said, I hate myself and want to die. That's a good thing to go to bed every night, isn't it? That's why, every night, that's what I looked up as I went to bed. And I can remember moments where I would, in anguish, maybe not even, I wouldn't have called it praying back then, but I would say to an effect, God, if you're out there, help me. Now, I didn't realize until later that that was a prayer and that God heard my prayer and there was moments that God would bring people across my path who would say, I found Jesus, come and see. I'd say, no thanks. This happened at least three times until on the fourth occasion, I decided, okay, I'm going to check this thing out for myself. And God literally transformed my life. You see, we don't know the silent, broken prayers that people pray at night when they're alone in their desperation, but God does. And oftentimes, your place the place you live, the place you work, the bus you get, whatever, you know, whatever the rhythms are of you. Sometimes God has purposed your play, art of answering that person's prayer. Now, usually with a come and see, there's a go and tell, right? Usually with a come and see, there's a go and tell. Uh, going back to the baby analogy, um, 
whenever we'd ha- we would have a baby, there's, we had four of them, thank God. There was a moment where it's like, okay, come and see, and now go tell the others. It's like, come and experience this, this joy for yourself. Look at this little person, and now go share the good news that this little person is alive and healthy and doing well. Thank God. The same is true for us as Jesus followers that as we come and see, and every week part of the purpose of us gathering here is that as we come and see what God is doing, that we're inspired and that we're challenged to go and tell others. And again, we're doing this big event next week, 24, two services. We're doing a social media thing. We're doing a leaflet drop. We're doing all these great things. But the bottom line is nothing can replace or take the precedent from the power of a personal invitation. Would you believe that 85% or more of new Jesus followers find Jesus through the invitation of someone they know and someone they trust? Like, yeah, social media is a great job, and yeah, we can do marketing, yes, we can do all these things, but nothing can replace the power of your personal invitation. When you say to your colleague, your neighbor, your family member, hey, listen, I don't be weird, and there's no pressure, but I would love for you to come this Sunday. We're doing a big event. It's really important for us. We're launching a second service. God's doing amazing things. I would love for you to come and see. I'm not saying give up what you believe. I'm not saying change what you believe. I'm not saying that what I believe is the expected. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just saying, would you be open-minded, open-hearted to come with us and see? Because the bottom line is, what's the worst that could happen? Some of us get so freaked out. Oh my gosh, what will I say? And how will I react? And oh my gosh, and oh my gosh. And what's the this and that? And, that, and, that. and we're having this like full-on like soap opera drama in our head. And it's like, whoa, whoa. You say, hey, will you come and see? What's the worst that can happen? They say, no. Now, let me just tell you something. We live in a very privileged day and age. Why? Because... For most of Christian history, and even today, in, in, in large parts of the world, the risk of inviting someone to come and see Jesus is that you might lose your life. I wonder what church growth would, be look, would look like in, the wor- in a world where the price for publicly following Jesus is all your possessions were confiscated. Your home was taken away from you. Your children were taken away and put in slavery. And you were publicly brought out into an arena where you were mercilessly and viciously killed. I wonder how church numbers are doing in a day and age like that. I, I, I don't know. But the point is, thank God for his grace that in our lifetime, we don't have to face those kind of things. The worst thing that can happen to us is they say no. And that's okay. Because we don't want a, a half-hearted, empty yes. We don't want to coerce or push or, or force people into anything there's people who are genuinely open, genuinely searching, genuinely curious. And maybe in their head, because of their perspective, they don't think the answer is God or Jesus uh, or what we teach. But if they're open-minded, they might come and say yes. But the worst thing to say is people can say, no, that's okay. But understand with me why people say no. There's two major pushbacks. We see this in Nathaniel for why people say no. The first one is the internal tension. What good is there in me? Most people, the reason why they're so combative and defensive when it comes to God and to his word is because they believe this word condemns them. They believe this word shames them. They believe that God is not out to love them or save them or rescue them. They believe that God is out to get them. And as I said before, I don't believe that the nation of Ireland has rejected the gospel. I am convinced that Ireland has not heard it. 
Because what Ireland lives in, Ireland lives in the hangover, very dark shadow of a very uh, oppressive religious regime that tried to force people into living and acting a way that wasn't authentic. That forced people into religious adherence. And that is not good news. Being forced or pushed into something you don't want to do is never good news. But when you accept someone into your life and they love you and they're for you and they help you and your life gets better and you get better at life, all of a sudden it's like, well, this is a really good thing. I want other people to experience it. That's the joy. That's the open. That's the, 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 the uh, motive for, for our invitation. But a lot of people, including ourselves, even as Christians, we wonder, if I come before God, if I open my heart, because of the lack of good in me, how will God respond? And of course, like we said last week, it's by grace, true faith, a gift of God for extraordinary purpose. But there's also the external tension, which is, well, what good is there in God? Like, what point is there? What, what per- how could God ever help me? And it's true. Like, in our world, in 21st century Ireland, living in Dublin, Europe's most expensive city, what a great accolade, not. All that means is there's too much traffic, none of houses, and people everywhere. It's like crazy. It's like, come on. Like, it's good to be a prospering nation. It's good to have a great economy. But man, you know, it's, it's not so fun to be living in hyperinflation, right? And the point is, it's very easy to say, well, I have all I need financially. I have a great career. And I have, you know, maybe a good social circle. And I have all these superficial prospects working in my favor. What good can God do for me? And the answer, of course, is this and will always be this. There is no other power on the earth that can transform a human heart. You can change your heart. You can change valves in your heart. You can do all sorts of biological, physical surgeries on your heart. But the seat of your being, the essence of your soul, the, the, the fundamental purpose for your life, the only thing that has the power to heal and make whole a human heart is the love and grace and salvation of Jesus. Now, people don't know that. And some people, when they do not, still don't want it. That's okay. Again, we're not here to force anyone. But the bottom line is the two pushbacks usually relate to people's insecurity about their own goodness, intrinsic value, and God's motive or ability to help them in their lives. Here's the bottom line. As my father used to always teach me, never say another person's no for them. It's amazing how how good we are justifying why we don't ask people because we've worked out in our head that they don't want it. Oh, but I know them and, and they, sure they wouldn't like it and it would be their thing. And it's like I shared last week about my dad, about my story of my dad, that I was convinced that God could save anyone, but God was never going to save my father. And so when God prompted me to give my dad a Bible with that famous verse, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. I was like, no, he says, no, no, God, no, thanks. Uh, I know my dad. He says, no. It's like it's, we're so quick to say another person. No. And I think there's something uh, perhaps more sinister going on here because we know that oftentimes the, 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 the enemy, Satan, the devil, whatever you call him, he's described as being a snake in Scripture, book of Genesis. So he's snaky, he's crafty. And I think one of the things the enemy does is the enemy never has to really cause another person to say no because he's convinced the Christians are going to say no before they even get a chance to hear it. But he doesn't have to work on the people. He just works on us. He convinces us, oh, there's no point because they will say no. If you had met me before I was Jesus' follower, if you knew me, if you were in my, in my life, then you would say there is no way in heck that guy 
will ever follow Jesus. In fact, if you lined up everyone in my class and said, which guy's going to be the pastor? It would never be me. I mean, I was terrible in school. I was a delinquent. I was a misfit. I had broken, by the time I finished third year, I'd broken all the records for complaint slips, suspend, detentions and suspensions. I threw a sheep's heart at my biology teacher, a, a table at my maths teacher, punched my English teacher. I mean, I was a terrorist in the making. I was good at terrorism, everybody. I was a domestic terrorist. That's what I was good at. If you said, which guy's going to grow up, become a gangster and go to jail or not live past 30? Jamie Cochran. That's the guy. That's who I was. That, that, that was my reality. That was my narrative. That was my trajectory. And Jesus saved me. And Jesus made me whole. And Jesus gave me a plan and a purpose. And Jesus redirected my life to where I'm doing right now. The point is, if someone had seen me, they would have said, there's no way I'm ever telling that guy about Jesus. Not only because of my lifestyle and because of the external persona that I had created for, for my own sociological protection, but also because I was not one that would listen quietly or politely to you and your faith. I was, the, I, was, I was the worst case scenario. I was the person that would get aggressive with you, but also could, quite, could you know, be quite logical. So I could argue and debate very aggressively. And then it was like those people because man, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, like, it's, it's combative. But the point is this, Jesus saved even me. And the reason why I stand before you and share this message is because I know by Jesus saving me, in many ways, the worst of sinners, so far, so hardened of heart, so bitter, so hurting, so angry, so, so destructive. I know with absolute confidence that Jesus can save anybody. That he can, he can, he can touch and tra- change and transform anyone who's open to his love, his grace. And I think it's true that it isn't just the, 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 the possibility, but it's also the, the responsibility that we as Jesus followers we have a responsibility to invite people to come and see. Like, it's like when, when we fully understand what it means to be in relationship with God, we want people to experience the joy that we experience. Like to be a Jesus father and experience the joy of being a Jesus father and not share that joy with other people kind of means that maybe you're not a Jesus father or at least you're not following Jesus in the way Jesus wants you to follow him. Why? Because so much of what we see in the Gospels is when we receive something good for God, we want to share with other people. It was Dr. Elton Trueblood who said, evangelism, that is sharing our faith, is not a professional job for a few trained people, but instead it is the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. What's, what's that Dr. Trouba saying? He's saying, your sharing faith isn't something pastors do or trained professionals. Every one of us who are Jesus followers, we're called, we're, 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 um, we're, we're entrusted with this responsibility of sharing the good news wherever we can. So Jesus finds us, we find others, third and finally, and Jesus finds others through us. There's this really bizarre supernatural phenomena where not only does Jesus find us, and when we have faith, we bump into people and our place is a purpose, but then God somehow works through us into those other people's lives. You know, when Jesus said to Nathaniel, here is an Israelite, basically what he's saying is, you know, you're a man, I can, I can tell you're a man of integrity, I can tell you're a man of character, I can tell you're a man who, who has no guile or, or is not conceited or, or, or doesn't cheat or steal. And obviously, this was true. Nathaniel was someone who those things were very important to him. So when Jesus greets Nathaniel with that, with that kind of prophetic revelation, Nathaniel in verse 48 says, 
how do you know me? How do you know me? It's like, like I haven't even got to hello yet, and you've already told me something that only I know about myself. It's like recently I was uh, with a bunch of leaders, and they decided to want to pray for me and pray for this church and pray for all God's doing. And one of the guys said, I think I have a, a prophetic word for you. And again, what's a prophetic word? Because it can sound so scary. It's like, I feel like God has put something in my heart that I want to say to you that if it's, if it's true according to this word, and it's true according to what God has put in you, then you will receive it. And what they say was, I feel like God is reminding you that you have an unusual confidence in his ability to be faithful. I was like, wow. Like, yes, that's true. For whatever reason, because of how I became a Jesus follower, because of all the years of leading and serving and following him, I just have an unusual, unshakable confidence that God can do anything at any time. And I can't explain it because I didn't work on that. I didn't create that. It's not like I said, oh, my goal for the year is to increase. It's, like, it's just like out of my relationship with God, I just have total trust and confidence that he will do what he said he will do. And so when that person shared that word, it's like, oh, yeah, that's me. And the same way for Nathaniel, it's like, you're a man of great integrity. Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? And then Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip even called him. Again, this is just the mystery, the fact that even, Joe, even though Jesus was a man, he was all also God. So somehow, after Philip's interaction with Jesus, before Philip even started the conversation, before Nathaniel even had the opportunity to reject Jesus, Jesus already saw him. And Jesus already knew him. Which is a very powerful question. How do you know me? You know, God knows you. Jesus knows you. And Jesus didn't just know you like people know you, like he really knows you. In fact, Jesus knows you so much, he knows you better than you know yourself. We think we know ourselves. Then oftentimes we're surprised by ourselves. Why did I do that? How can I be so stupid? How am I here again? Why? Because we're constantly learning about ourselves. But Jesus knows us so well, he knows us better than ourselves. Now, if you're a normal person, that's on the one hand, perhaps exciting. On the other hand, it's terrifying. Why? Because you know you as well. And you know the dark temptations of your heart. And you know the sin that's in your soul. And you know what you're capable of as a fallen human being. So if you know that, and Jesus knows that, it's like, where do we go from here? And the answer is, Jesus' response to knowing you is that he loves you. He doesn't condemn you. Like, Jesus isn't surprised by our sin. Jesus is like, oh, here's my friend John. Oh my gosh! How could you think that thought? How could you fantasize? How could you desire? How could you comment? How could you say that? Like Jesus isn't offended or surprised or disgusted by, our, by us. Of course, sin is sin and there's no place in God for sin. But Jesus looks towards and sees in the mess, in the pit, in the destruction. He sees us and he knows us better than we know ourselves and he loves us. And he wants all the world to experience that love for ourselves. I can tell you, as I was standing in the front row today and the band did an amazing job leading us like to do it every week. And it was so good to see Tiago. Come on, everybody, uh, on the keyboard for the first Sunday. Well done, Tiago. But I'm standing there and I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of preparing for the message, going over my slides and, and I'm singing a song. But then I had this moment where it's like, Jesus, you know me. And you love me. And you saved me. And even after I experienced these things, 
and I follow you and I fall and I fall and I fall and I fall. You don't discard me or reject me or eject me. Still, you call me according to your extraordinary purpose. Jesus knows you, Jesus loves you, but Jesus also calls you. Because, yes, there's the junk and yes, there's the stuff that worked through, but also there's the potential of God's plan and purpose for our life. And we've been called to be a lighthouse. Like, lighthouse is not something you come to, lighthouse is something you are. Wherever you go, you carry the hope of humanity in your heart. You carry the light of the gospel in your heart. You carry the name of Jesus in your heart. Wherever you are, all you do is pray in the name of Jesus and there is power. And I was reminded this recently and unfortunately it's, it's, uh, it's been a crazy year with, with natural disasters, what happened in Morocco and Turkey and the fires in Hawaii and so many natural disasters and if I know there's nothing really good that can come out of these disasters, but maybe one thing that's good is seeing how people can be so selfless and so heroic and so loving towards people. Like, I mean, I, I watched the news this week and I saw these guys landing from, like, Spain. Into, and, like, they, they're, they're, they're at home living the life out in the sun, but they've volunteered to risk their lives to fight another country, a country with a different culture, different religious belief, a different world, to go and rescue people they did not even know. Perhaps the great example this week is, obviously it's the week we, where we remember September 11th, and here's an iconic photo. And I can remember uh, being in school. And I remember walking out after class and someone running down the corridor, losing their mind going, America is on fire. That's all he said, America is on fire. And all of a sudden there's an announcement, school was over, Roth and home. I get home and mother, all my family are sitting on the couch watching the news. It must have been about three o'clock Irish time at this point because uh, it was nine o'clock in the morning there. And I'm watching a building that actually one year prior, I had been up the very top of the World Trade Center. I watched the building that I was in on top of literally crumbling. And then thinking about like, was, was it evacuated? And I said, no, there's still thousands of people. And we all know what happened on September 11th. But the thing that I always go back to is watching these firefighters. Man, it makes you emotional thinking about it. The thing is on fire. Pieces are falling off. And these dudes are running into the building. They're running into the fire. They're running into the building and they're running up all these flights of stairs trying to save people. And of course, as we know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of those first responders died, not running away from, but running, all the people running out and they're running in. And again, these are just normal, ordinary people, but the minute they put on that uniform, they have an oath, they have a creed, they have a commitment, they have a responsibility that when others run away from, they run towards. And that ultimately, no greater love, and oftentimes you'll see this plastered all over police force and army and fire brigade places, no greater love than any man this, that he would lay down his life for her. Of course, those are the words of Jesus found in John's gospel. And I was inspired because thinking, that's what we're called to do as Christians. Not physically, although sometimes it may be required of us, but spiritually. Spiritually, the world around us is burning. Spiritually, the world around us is crumbling. Spiritually, like, even though there's all the trappings of success and wealth and economy, when you talk to people, when you listen to the news, when you get out of what you see, man, people are dying on the ends. People are empty. People are confused. People are angry. People are literally killing each other. There's, there's, I mean, it's so bizarre because it's such a, an oxymoron or dichotomy. On the surface, we're so well off and so educated and so sophisticated and so first world, 
But on the other hand, underneath the surface, there's so much, there's like a cancer at work inside the soul of humanity, sin. That's eating away at us and causing us to eat away at everyone else. And people will look for all sorts of ways and, and medications and philosophies and, and dogmas to try work our way out of that, but we can't. Why? Because we can't work our way out of sin. We can only be saved from it. And the only thing that has the power to combat the work of sin in a human heart is the power of the Holy Spirit, is the good news of Jesus. And what we're called to do in the world as, as Lighthouse is we're called, not everyone will want to be saved. Not everyone will appreciate our efforts. Not everyone will agree with our point of view. Not everyone will agree with our, our approach. But ultimately what we're called to do is to run into those, those places of desperation and distress and say, there is good news. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. And Jesus calls you. The story finishes in verse 50 with Jesus saying this to, to uh, Nathaniel. He said, yeah, it's pretty impressive that I had a prophetic word for you. It's pretty impressive that I know you as good, if not as better, better than you know yourself. But you will see greater things than that. And I was telling the team this morning, I really believe this is God's promise for our church. We have seen some pretty great things. From the day we believe God called us to start this church, which was an amazing thing, and we took the step of faith, to this time last year, we were saying, man, should we move into the ISENS? It seems like such a big deal. It's beyond us. It's, we don't have the money. We don't have the ability. We don't have the people. We felt like God was speaking to us, be brave and be courageous. So we did. There's so many things that we look back and we realize God has done great things, but yet here we are on the on the cusp of something new, on the cusp of something extraordinary. And Jesus' promise towards us is this, as we continue to follow him in helping others find and follow him, we will see even greater things than that. For us to see this reality, we must sow. Like I said last week, these invitation cards, there's like seed. Again, we can't, we can't, manufacture results. We don't want to coerce or force people, but when we sow a seed of faith, when we sow a seed of encouragement, when we sow a seed of hope, hopefully that seed will grow and then we will see a harvest. But we cannot see what we have not sown. And God cannot bless what is not in the ground. And there cannot be a harvest if there isn't a by faith sowing of the seed. It was William Lang Craig, who's a famous uh, philosopher and theologian, said, successful evangelism, sharing our faith, involves not only harvesting, as in seeing people come to Jesus, but sowing and watering too. We must never think that because a non-believer remained unconvinced by our case, that our apologetic, that is, our explaining our faith, has failed. For one encounter is not the end of the story. We don't know God's plan for people. We don't know that we can't see the totality. There's people in my story that when, when they shared faith, they could never know that years later, all this would happen to me and here I am leading a church. All they could do in that moment was be brave and be generous and be gracious and be loving and sow a seed. That's all we can do as well as a church as we can trust God as we sow a seed. So as we get ready to pray then, three practical ways. So three ways that we can sow seed. Number one, we can pray. And this isn't like the right answer. I was like, oh yeah, of course, you're a pastor. It's like the, the, the natural first step is pray. No, no, no. 
Prayer works. You know why prayer works? Because the name of Jesus works. And I can I could go on literally, Alan joked about five and a half hours. I could go on five and a half hours and more. Talk about all the stories of where we prayed in the name of Jesus. And Jesus' name did something incredible. Every morning, I pray my kids. Why? Because I know there is power in the name of Jesus. Even little Jonathan, he can barely even speak. And he already knows the word amen. Because maybe he can't pray it, but he, he can agree with it. And God sees our heart. When we pray for people, in regards to what decision they make, God answers our prayer. And the right Christian prayer is, God, because you know, and because you love, would you call? Because you know, and because you love, would you call unto yourself? We want people to know Jesus, not so that we can say, oh, we brought, so they can know Jesus. Because when you, there's nothing more exciting, nothing more thrilling, nothing more satisfying than seeing someone find and follow Jesus and God works your life and you know, man, I played a part in that. So we pray. And I want to encourage this week, pray. If you're handing out invitation cards, pray over the cards. Pray for the people. Pray for your family. Pray for your colleagues. Pray for your classmates. Pray for your neighbors. Pray. God answers and honors prayer. Pray in the name of Jesus. Secondly, invite. Because prayer is enough. Prayer is great, but we have to sow seed. That seed is an invitation. 85% of people, that means 85% or more of those who's in this room who do follow Jesus, follow Jesus because someone we know invited us. And the same is true for your friends. I can't tell you how many times God has surprised me because I would, I, would, I would love to say, oh man, I'm such a, a true believer. Oftentimes I would invite people half-heartedly hoping they might receive the invitation. And how many times has God surprised me that at my half-hearted attempt, in spite of my half-hearted attempt, God's full-hearted power was made real. People's lives were changed. Sometimes I look at some people and I go, I should have believed better. I should have believed more. I believed enough to make the invitation, but I didn't believe enough to believe that God could do what he did. And God did, and God does, and God will. So we pray, and we invite. Number three, you think, well, how is number three? What else? We bring. What's the difference between invite and bring? Invite is, hey, are you free on Sunday? Well, depending on how the game goes on Saturday. Well, in Jesus' name. Um, free on Sunday, yeah. Well, you know, we're doing this thing in church. You know, Bono, you two, whatever. Come along. You love it. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. So, okay. What's bring? Well, bring goes the extra mile. Tell you what. Come and see with me. And then come and eat with me. Or maybe like, have your kids sleep over Saturday night and come collect them at church. Or just meet for coffee before the 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock service and then go to church again. Like just, like it's going the extra mile in, in, in helping people get over the fear, trepidation, uncertainty. Because let's be honest, who really wants to go to church? It's not like millions of Irish who wake up in the morning and go, Google, where's I go to church today? It's like, it doesn't happen. People are uncertain, they're fearful, like, like, you, like you and I were or are or would be. So we say, hey, let's have coffee. Let's do lunch. Let's, let's, let's do something that makes it easier for you to come. If we pray, if we invite, if we bring, if we sow seed, we will see the faithfulness of God. That which brings us joy, we want to share to bring joy to others. 
Let's get excited for what's possible. Let me invite others to come and see. Just meditate with me for a second on that word possible. What's possible? What's possible? We should never underestimate what's possible when we extend an invitation. Right now, there's a young man in one of our churches, an Avon location, preaching the exact same message. My brother. The reason why he's doing it because many years ago, God prompted me to pray for him, to invite him, and to bring him. Back then, he was a teenager. I said, hey, come stay at my house for Easter. Come to church with me on Sunday. We'll hang out, do some fun things. And he'll come to church. Now he's leading a church. I shared last week, I gave a Bible to my dad. I said, don't make it a beer, beer coaster. Don't burn it. You should know the truth. The truth will set you free. I can go on and on and on. My other brother, we were going on this trip to Canada years ago. I was speaking at a church there. Me and this, my Sam, who's now a pastor, we were traveling over. My other brother lived there. I'm like, well, we can't, three of us can't be there and one here. So we figured out a way to get a ticket and brought the other brother over. I told my brothers, listen, we'll do whatever, whatever you want. We'll party, we'll go out, we'll do whatever you want. But the one thing I ask is that you all come to church with me. It's like four services speaking at, at least come to one. I said, okay, we'll go to this service, great. Uh, after the service, I was coming down, kind of saying, hey, what do you guys think? I turned to one of my brothers, and I go, so what did you think, bro? And he goes, oh, I felt the presence of God give my life to Jesus. I was like, what? He's like, yeah. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what you're saying. I felt the presence of God in that moment. I knew it was real. And so I gave my life to Jesus. I'm like, that's way too easy. Come on. Like, it's, it's how this works. You know what I'm saying? Like, what the heck? He's like, yeah. God's changed my life. And so on, and so on, and so on. What's possible? Here's what I know for certain. What's possible? What's not possible is we'll never know. We'll never know unless we invite. Do not say another no, another person's no for them. Let's be brave, Lighthouse Church. Let's be courageous as we pray, as we invite, as we bring, as we make space in this place. I believe that God knows people who are searching. God loves people and God will call them to himself. And hopefully, this time next Sunday, we will have made some history as we go from one church in Dublin, one service.